Good morning, my name is Craig again, and this morning I am swimming upstream against two currents. Not one, but two currents. But I've got the shirt for it, so we're going to be all right. Here's the two currents I'm swimming against. We're talking about evangelism this morning. And whenever we talk about evangelism or church talks about evangelism, I think there's many things that pop up, but there's two currents that we just got to name before we can have this conversation. All right, we just want to have a good conversation, dialogue back and forth. I don't want you to be like, whoa, I'm out of here, right out of the gate. All right, and here is current number one I'm swimming against the stream of. And it is, uh, I don't know what to call it, we'll call it fake empires. Uh, I have playlists for many seasons in my life. And uh, when I was in seminary, I had just been around a lot of uh, big names. Right, not because I'm a big name or anything like that. I just was like in the room like, whoa. And I would always listen to this song by The National called Fake Empires after I was around a lot of these big names. It just felt like, man, people like these celebrity preachers, they just want to build big things for the sake of hanging out with their golf buddies and be like, wow, I'm a big deal. And this is great. Like, how big's your church? Oh, how big's your church? Oh, how many books did you sell? And it's really gross. Like, I, so we'll just call stream number one, like the icky factor. When pastors talk about evangelism, I just want to be, uh, just name it and be mindful of, it can be this icky factor of, uh-huh, you're just trying to build a church. You're just trying to get butts in seats so you can impress your friends at the golf course. And I, I, I don't, I can't, I'm not going to try to say anything, but no, that's not me, I swear. I just like, this gross, and we're going to name it. All right, and we're going to ask three questions, and I think question number one really tries to work against that stream, but we just got to name that stream. When churches talk about evangelism, it can feel like, uh-huh, we're just building fake empires. Right? We just want to just have a big thing. Got it. Thing number two, when you talk about evangelism, according to the Billy Graham Center at Wheaton College, when churches talk about evangelism, 5% of people get excited. They're like, yes, this church needs to do more evangelism. Finally, here we go. Everybody's going to get as excited as I am. The rest of us stare at our shoes. And so the other stream that I'm swimming upstream with is guilt and shame. There's a lot of guilt and shame when churches talk about this. So we're, we're, we're swimming upstream with the icky factor, and we're swimming upstream with the guilt and shame factor. And the, what is this factor? Maybe even a little bit too. This morning though, I just want to ask three questions that I think can maybe help us imagine this a little bit differently. Three questions. We're going to ask three questions, and then we're going to look at an Old Testament prophet. All right? Three questions. Question number one. What do you think God thinks about your neighbors? What do you think God thinks about your neighbors? About that attorney who you share a fence with that you're like, how is my neighbor an attorney? And then you have really loud parties. Or the smoker down the street, Right, where it's like, you know, they're, they're just, their dog poops on your yard, and they smoke, and like, it doesn't matter what time of day it is, just that breeze just comes, and it's like, you know, marble menthol lights with hundreds, right into your nose, right? Like, wh what does God think about our neighbors? See, when, when, we, when we talk about, when we talk about evangelism, when we talk about any of this stuff, we have to ask that question. How does God think and feel about my neighbors? 
What if he likes them? What if God likes our neighbors? In attachment theory, attachments, those are those relationships that change us, right? So you've made an attachment with somebody when you just like, you bond with them, you connect with them, and you're each caring for each other's needs in different ways. Maybe it's a friendship where someone just really hears you. Man, that's an attachment that got created. Attachments cannot get created if we seek to attach to someone to get something. So if my grandmother is wealthy, like crazy rich, and she's old, right? And I move to attach to her. Grandma, I love you. I'm going to take care of your needs in this ailing season of your life. No real attachment is going to get made. Because why am I moving toward her? I want to be in the will, baby. It's very difficult for an attachment to get made when it's about something. When we talk about evangelism, we have to start with attachment. We're asking the question, what if God likes our neighbors? Well, then it may be up to us to do something about that. To move toward people God likes. To, to build an attachment without asking for or expecting anything in return. But just to like someone for the relationship's sake itself. What if God likes our neighbors? At this church, we talk a lot about God liking us, right? The, the blessing, the ironic blessing that in, in, the, in Israel that was prayed every day over those people. The Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine on you. May God be smiling over us. That's life-giving for us. We as a church have experienced that life-giving joy of that message. God likes us. We're just asking this morning, what if he likes our neighbors too? What if he likes our neighbors too? Does that change anything? Uh, the Billy Graham Center at Wheaton College has also pointed out uh, something that does that, so that might that that is my answer for the first stream, the icky factor, right? If it's like, hey, help us get more butts and seats, we just feel kind of self-conscious going to a church that's dwindling. So you know, it'd be good to have you here. That'd be great. No real attachment's going to get made. We've got to focus on the relationship. The relationship is an end in itself, with no goal of anything after that. Just like we're going to love on you. All right? The second thing, how do we swim against the icky factor? We just got to name the icky factor a little bit. There's a quote that often gets attributed to Winston Churchill. All right? And, and, and it's really hilarious because I don't think it is Winston Churchill, which is kind of ironic with the quote. It goes something like this. Bad news is able to go around the world before truth even has an opportunity to put its pants on. Bad news is able to travel around the world so fast, truth doesn't even have an opportunity to put its pants on. It's a great quote, probably not Winston Churchill. But bad news sells books. Bad news raises money. I was watching a documentary, a political documentary, and they were talking about a political party. Which one? Not the one you associate with, all right? <laughs> Whatever party you are, it's the other one, okay? And this party said, this party said, you know what we found is the greatest fundraiser ever? Fear. You just scare people and they will throw money at you. All right, so bad news sells books. My concern is as a church, we, 
unaware of it, we have bought into a lot of this bad news. All right? And then that bad news is like, it's just flowing through our veins when we start talking about evangelism. So we hear some of these myths, right? Here's a myth. The church is dwindling in America and will disappear in a generation. Have you heard this myth? Okay, and you're like, wait a minute, Craig. When we started this little series, didn't you talk about decline? And like the five stages of decline? And it's like, whoa, okay, this is a myth. But in order for myths to catch on, they have to be rooted a little bit in truth. Like if I were to say to you, Columbia, Missouri is going to be overrun with rhinoceroses. You'd be like, thanks, I'm walking away, right? This is not rooted in reality. The church in America is dwindling and will disappear in generation. There's some truth attached to that, all right? In order for it to take off, there does have to be some truth. So, for example, like the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, are, are just a powerful and huge religious group. So what are the nuns? The nuns are people who do not associate with any church, any religious movement. They're unassociated. That's huge, right? It's, and it's growing. So there's some truth to this. Also, according to the Billy Graham Center at Wheaton College, 59% of churches, 5 59% of churches have either plateaued or in decline. 59%. All right? 31% of these churches are growing. Whew! No. They're growing through transfer growth, meaning the decline of the 59% are just moving over here. So we're just rearranging furniture on the Titanic, right? But there is this 10%. 10% of churches in America are growing through conversion. That means in a church of 100, 10 of those people got saved recently through the ministry of that church. Oh, and it's wildly energizing and exciting. And here's some really good and confusing news about that, right? Of this 10%, of this 10%, you're probably like, okay, what are they doing? We just got to copy that. There's, there's no clear, like, strategy, right? Some of these churches are very liturgical. Some of these churches are very casual. Some of these churches have loud music. Some of these churches have boring music. Some, and it's all right. Some of these churches are Pentecostal, and some of these churches are Reformed. What in the world? How do you account for that? Well, if you remember what we've been saying all along in this series is we're not going to try to just find a practice and copy it. Oh, what were they doing? Let's copy it. But we are looking for postures. Right? What's that way of being? So it's not about doing, but what's that way of being that's really resonating? And what they find is this. Of that 10%, there's a posture, and this posture is hospitality toward the unchurched. Hospitality toward the unchurched. Doesn't matter if your church lights candles and says things in Latin, or is just like playing Hillsong all week. If your church has, is cultivating hospitality toward the unchurched, that, again, there's no guarantees here, that's a commonality that these churches have. And that's the posture we're after this morning. Because again, 
I'm just going to ask this. I'm, not, I'm trying not to be like, a, like, like a, uh, an insecure Baptist preacher. Do you know the insecure Baptist preachers? Like they say something and they don't know if it resonates. They go, amen, right? Amen. I'm trying not to be that, but I just want to say something, and I want to put you guys on the hook for it, okay? All right, here we go. At this church, we believe the Bible. Amen? Okay, you're all on the hook for that now. All right, some of you are, I didn't say amen. Well, your neighbors are on the hook. All right, you're all on the hook for that. Okay, we believe the Bible at this church. Yeah, you're definitely on the hook. All right? The Bible explicitly and clearly states God wants to bless our neighbors. The Bible clearly and explicitly states God wants to bless our neighbors. We haven't even got to this Old Testament prophet, but we just got to set some stage work here. Genesis 12, 2. When God, Genesis 12 is a big shift in the Hebrew Bible. God appears to Abraham and he sets the, the redemptive story into place. And he says this. Uh, any literary nerds out there? Okay. Literary nerds. Here's it. When a word gets repeated a lot in a small section of literature, it's important. Okay? In two verses, one, two, the word bless is used, well, I'll let you count. Here we go. I will make you into a great nation. This is God to Abraham. And I will bless you. I'll make your name great. And you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. In those two short verses, how many times do we hear the word bless? Five times. God is committed to blessing your neighbors. Now you may be saying, uh, I don't know, I'm not Abraham. Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had, and I am one of them. You're definitely on the hook now. You said you believe the Bible. You also just identified as a child of Abraham. All people on earth will be blessed through you. What if God likes our neighbors? Are we working yet against the icky factor? Are we also working against the guilt and shame factor? See, I think, I think a lot of us, when we hear this invitation to evangelism, our mind goes to, what's it called on the University of Missouri campus, the speaker circle? It's like, all right, what's your date? What's your, you fill out a time slot for speaker circle. Just go and start yelling at people, all right? That's evangelism. That's not taking seriously God's word. He wants to bless our neighbors. What if the Bible means what it says? All peoples of the earth will be blessed through us. What if we've got the corner on good news? What if there's people in your life and my life that have been put there so they can live this verse through you. Blessing. What if 
God likes our neighbors. And what if he wants to bless them? And what if he's chosen us to bless them? Okay, you don't have to be an Old Testament scholar to answer this. Is blessing good or bad? Okay, so let's say it like this. What if God wants good things for your neighbor and we get to be the vehicle that those good things come through them? What are those good things? A relationship with the living God. A father who loves and delights in us because of unmerited favor. A father who forgives our sins, who welcomes us with joy. What if God likes our neighbors? Question number one. Question number two. What's it going to take to recapture our imagination for evangelism? What does it take to recapture our imagination, dreaming, getting excited about it? We're not talking about obligation and just like, get out there, hit the ground, all right? Hell's hot, here you go. But what about capturing our imagination for what God could do through us? What would that look like? I want to work against this thing called the Christian failure narrative. Christian failure narrative is just like, hey, you're a mess. God's kind and forgave you, but just kind of, just, you're, you're going to mess up. He'll swoop in and save the day. Now, there's, again, truth to that. We are a mess. God loved us and saved us. It's that Stormzy song. Lord, I've been broken, although I'm not worthy. You fix me. Nobody? Oh, my goodness. That's embarrassing. <laughs> All right, there's truth to that. But there's also this abundant life that Jesus has given us. And that in, God, in Christ, all the promises of God are yes and amen. And God is saying, I want to bless your neighbors through you. And so this doesn't have to be this obligatory guilt-ridden thing. We can step out in confidence that God's word means what it says. And that's again... Working at myth number two. Trust in the church is at an all-time low. You're like, well, if I, no one's seeking, no one cares. Right? And people don't even trust church. If you read the news, awful things, terrible things have been happening in the name of Jesus. Terrible things. Abuse, scandal. I mean, it's like a soap opera. It's terrible. And silence, too. That's the other thing. People not calling this out, speaking against this. And what happens? Trust plummets. But there's good news, though. Broken trust can be restored. How does broken trust get restored? You just, we own things. Or I should say, man, that grieves us, too. We hate that. There is evil in the world, and that's it. Broken trust can be restored. The church is experiencing an interesting moment. We don't, we don't deny that. And we trust, we're stepping out saying, God really does like our neighbors. What then could happen as a result of this? We want to give you, we want to give you just some tools, something to just hang your furniture on so that we can, as a community, it's, it's, it's wide enough so that you in your own unique way 
can experience the goodness of this with the unique places God's put you in. But it's also narrow enough so that we're all headed in the same direction. What we're going to do is we're going to look through the book of Jonah this morning. And we're going to try to work against both the icky factor and the guilt and shame factor. So that we can learn how to be a blessing to our neighbors. The book of Jonah has to convince you that God really does like your neighbors. And we get to be a blessing to them. Jonah, you may remember, Jonah is introduced uh, in the book of 2 Kings, in 2 Kings 14. He's introduced as a false prophet. The king in Israel, Jeroboam, is worried about some war, and so he calls Jonah in. He's like, hey, Jonah, is this going to work well for me? And Jonah's like, totally, totally. You got it, man. You're good. Like, God's going to bless this. You're good. God sends Amos to Jeroboam and says, tell him that's not what I said. All right? That is, that is a false prophet. That's Jonah. All right? So God sends Jonah to these people called the Ninevites, and Jonah says, no, thank you. And you know what we see happening, though? Basically, everything Jonah touches turns to blessing. He runs away on a boat, away from Nineveh. The people on the boat get saved, cry out to God. He goes to Nineveh, and he doesn't even say what God told him to say. He gives a five-word sermon. And in a form of satire, the Hebrew text tells us even the cows repented. And you're like, what? And it's like, no, no, no. What, what the, the author's trying to get is like, this guy, it's, it's flipping things upside down. And so what we're going to see is if God can use somebody who's working against him to bring blessing. I think that does a couple things for us. Will you finally let that truth into your heart that God might just like you and your neighbors? He's not putting up with you. He really is. Wor- and when people try to work against it, he's still committed to it. He's like, yeah, you're right. I shouldn't, I shouldn't be gracious. My bad. No, he's like, ah, I'm going to figure out a way to get more people on board because of your rebellion. This is his posture and his heart. I think that's going to work against this guilt and shame thing too. I'm like, oh, I really, you know, I ought to be reaching out to more people. Like, oh, yeah, I don't evangelize. I hear all these people who do evangelize. Ah, I don't. My bad. We, we, we want to just, like, take that out and just put it in the parking lot for a little bit. What if God likes our neighbors? What's it going to take to reclaim our imagination for how we bless our neighbors? Turn with me in your Bible to Jonah chapter 1. Jonah chapter 1. It's in the Old Testament near the end. Uh, there's a book called Obadiah. If you found that, just keep going a little bit more. You're almost there. Uh, yeah, that's, that's all I got for good instructions. Just keep flipping. And if you're really self-conscious, just stop flipping so your neighbors think you found it. Uh, Jonah. I'm going to read all of chapter 1. And then we're going to dive into this. How can we bless our neighbors? Jonah chapter 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, uh, where he found a ship uh, uh, bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish. To flee from the Lord. 
Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea. Such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up! Call on your God! Maybe he'll take notice of us so that we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who's responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lots fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us, who's responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What's your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew. I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them. And they asked, What have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he'd already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him, uh, What should we do to make the sea calm down for us? Uh, Pick me up, throw me into the sea, he replied. Uh, It'll be calm. I know that's my fault uh, that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to the land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. But they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this... The men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we need your help. God, I do think a lot of us sit in a place where we experience skepticism. What are we inviting people into? Is this just about empire building? And we also experience guilt and shame. God, I pray you'd open all of us to a new perspective this morning. That you really do like our neighbors. You really do want to bless the world through us. God, I pray that we would be people who make attachments with people beyond these four walls with no expectation of anything in return. That we would love our neighbors. In Jesus' name, amen. The book of Jonah is very familiar to us, but the book is also like just dripping with satire, right? There's all these expectations that we have about the book that get flipped upside down. Expectation number one, a prophet would care about what God cares about. Not the case, right? And I think this is the case because we found a false prophet, right? So God, I think God is like, you know, he's like, hey, look, watch what happens when I put a false prophet in here to do my work. Again, I think what can happen to us is we can say, look, I'm not a false prophet. I have a lot of fear and trepidation about talking to my neighbors. I'm terrified about it. But if God can use a false prophet, who knows? Maybe there's hope for me. And we work against this Christian failure narrative. Here's what's happening, though, with with Jonah that we need to draw your attention to. Look again at uh, chapter 1, verse 3. So the word of the Lord comes to Jonah. And then go to Nineveh. What happens? 
Jonah runs away from the Lord. In Hebrew, this literally reads, Jonah runs away from the presence of the Lord. From the presence of the Lord. That carries a little bit more weight. He runs away from the presence of the Lord and he heads for Tarshish. And again, uh, it says that he went down to Joppa where he found a ship uh, bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard the ship and sailed to Tarshish to flee from the Lord. It says it twice in that verse. Here's the strong implication of this passage. All right? God says, go to Nineveh. Jonah goes the opposite direction. Nineveh is east. Tarshish is west. A lot of people think it's Spain. All right, so he's going away from Nineveh, which is also equated to running away from the presence of God. It says it twice in the verse. Once at the beginning, Jonah went, ran away from the presence of the Lord, and he went on a boat to flee from the presence of the Lord. What's happening here? God's presence is at Nineveh, not with Jonah. Do you hear that? He's running from the presence of the Lord. Where's he running from? Nineveh. What if God likes our neighbors? And what if by stepping out to bless them, we're stepping into God's presence? What if God's presence is where he is on mission? See, Jonah is stepping away from God's presence and God's presence is where he's invited him. What, how does God feel about our neighbors? What if when we reach out to bless our neighbors, we're stepping into God's presence? God's presence is energizing, right? That, that, there's life in his presence, right? And when we step out in faith to trust where he's telling us to go, we experience that life. Jonah runs away. We're like, why? It seems really random. There's a lot of reasons. A lot of Old Testament commentators think that the Ninevites, it's a, it's a city in Assyria. Assyria was an enemy of Israel. And we know that the Assyrians would do things like when they would conquer a city, sometimes they wouldn't tear the walls down. They'd leave the walls up and then plaster them in human skin, right? As if to say like, hey, don't mess with us. Like, we're pretty bad news bears, Right, so you can just imagine, like, was Jonah, like, did he just hate, did he have a bad experience with them? Did they kill somebody he loved and he just hates them? We don't know. Either way, we are told this about Jonah's motivation. He does not want these people to experience God's grace. He knows what he's running from. It's peeking ahead a little bit, but in Jonah 4, 2, after all, after the, the mariners, the sea people repented, after the city of Nineveh, even the cows repented, Jonah goes up on a hill and he says to God, this is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. So why did he run from the presence of God? I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love. You make attachments, God. A God who relents from sending calamity. He says, I run because I know you can't help yourself, God. It's just who you are. Jonah is quoting from uh, Exodus 34, 6 and 7, which is like the John 3, 16 of the Hebrew Bible. Yahweh, Yahweh. Gracious and compassionate. Slow to anger and abounding in hesed. He said, I know who you are. I know you like the Ninevites, and I don't. 
And so this prophet who's working against what God is trying to do, look at the fruit of what we see happening to, uh, for Jonah, right? So there's a, there's a verb that's very important in the book of Jonah. It's the verb to go down. It's talking about Jonah's own decline, his downward spiral. He goes down to Joppa, right? So it's the first step of him going down, all right? He finds a boat. What does he do when he gets to that boat? He goes down below deck to fall into a deep sleep. We see a downward spiral of God's mind. First he runs from God, and then just down, it's just bad news bears. It keeps getting worse and worse. The reason he's sleeping is because he, I believe, has a death wish. He would rather die than see his enemies experience God's goodness. He's like, oh, storm, great. I'm, I, I'm off the hook. How can I preach to the Ninevites if I'm dead? So he goes down to sleep. I think the text is showing just an utter disregard Jonah doesn't, not only does he not care about the Ninevites, he's rooting for their destruction, right? This is, a, this is a posture that just says, like, I hate my neighborhood, God. I hate these wicked people you put around me, and I want to be off the hook for this. And the captain shows up and is like, hey, what are you doing? Like, like do you care about our lives at all? Go up. And then again, it continues. It sounds like it could be pretty pious of Jonah. He says at the end of chapter 1, he says, oh, uh, yeah, I did this. I'm a Hebrew. I worship the God who created the land and the sea. And it sounds pious, right? But like, not really. Like, wait, you worship the God who created the land and the sea, but you're just sleeping down. But like, what are you doing, bro? Like, what? Right? He just doesn't care. And so what does he suggest? Throw me overboard. And again, we're like, oh, see, he knows that it's going to calm down. He says so. No, because the sailors have a total, they're like, we're not going to kill you. See, he's still on this death spiral. He's like, he's going down and down and down. They like, yeah, throw me overboard. What does he want? He's like, I want this to end quicker. Right? So throw me overboard. The sailors reluctantly do that. So what's happening? Jonah came up with his own plan. The sailors do that plan. And what does God do? Flips it upside down calms the sea. And then what happens? Look with me again at the end of chapter 1, what the sailors do. In Jonah, this is Jonah chapter 1. It says, the sailors cried out to Yahweh. In verse 16, the men greatly feared the Lord. They offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. People he certainly didn't care about now are followers of Yahweh. Ugh. He's reluctantly reaching people. Are we yet working against that Christian failure narrative? Who am I? How can I be a blessing to people? God can use this clown. Right? This guy, I mean, this guy, after, if he's, you know, if he lived long after this, he's probably teaching classes on how to reach the nations. And he was not trying to. So we just want to give a handle. Something that we say, hey, we think this can raise our imagination. We think we can all use this tool together. To be people to bless. If God can use someone who's working against it, we're here and we're, we want people to receive God's blessing. So we just want to give you a tool that can just jumpstart your imagination. We're not trying to be legalistic about this. We just want to say, hey, here's a tool and, and you're in a different setting than I am. How can God use this imagination? And it, it's really great. The tool spells bless. Wow. We're so creative around here. Amazing. Here we go. We want to bless our neighbors. How do we bless our neighbors? B-L-E-S-S. We begin with prayer. How does God capture our imagination? We just bring our imagination to God. 
uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, the elders at Compass Church discovered this book, You Found Me. I cannot recommend this book enough. Um, someone told me that this looks like an old lady's Bible. Uh, I just marked this book up like crazy. Love this book. Deeply resonate with it. This book works against that whole Christian failure narrative. It actually says, our neighbors are more open to faith than you think. Our neighbors are spiritually curious people. Right? And, and if you reach out to them in appropriate ways... People respond in appropriate ways. This is one of those ways to reach out. We begin with prayer. So what you do is, this is a really dangerous prayer. Like, I have just experienced in my life, God answers this prayer fast. Like, God, bring somebody in my path that I can bless. Right? It happens fast. So just be careful. It's a warning with this. Begin with prayer. God, hey, I live in this neighborhood. What do you feel about this neighborhood? Right? What are your dreams for the type of people we become? God, God, fill me with those dreams. God, I want to think about how can I bless my coworkers. Begin with prayer. Secondly, we listen. We listen. We talked about last week this posture of prayer. One of the things in the book of Deuteronomy that God says about himself is like, hey, don't cry out to the other gods. They don't listen. God listens when we pray. We are being like God when we listen to our neighbors. Some of the most life-giving people in your life, I would imagine, are the listeners. People who really hear you and see you. That's how we can start to bless our neighbors. We begin with prayer. God, put somebody in my life. God, who do you want me to bless? Oh, here they are. Help me to listen to them. What are they saying? How do they feel about what they're saying? What questions can I ask them so they give me more things to listen to? Eat together. Eat together. There's a tribe in Peru that they have this saying that it's very difficult to be someone's enemy after you've eaten a mango together. And if you've ever eaten a mango, you know exactly what that means. Like, it's, just, it's not a dignified sport, eating mango, right? There's just these like, strings and it's just a juice all pouring down your face. Eating together puts the walls down. You get to know people. You find, oh, man, they, they serve themselves first. Rude. Right? You just get to see who people really are. Walls come down. Right? When we eat together, it's an invitation to belong. Right? We say things like, you've got a spot at the table. What does that mean? It means it's nice to have a spot at the table. People like eating together. So how can we be a blessing to our neighbors? Eat. Everybody eats. Do it with your neighbors. Eat. Serve. We can serve our neighbors. We begin with prayer, we listen, we eat together, and then we serve our neighbors. Right? I'm always humbled by, like, I, uh, I am like a poster child for, like, home ownership isn't for everybody. All right? Like, when something breaks, I'm just like, oh, now we don't have a door. Okay. Bummer. Right? I just, but my neighbors serve me. Right? Like, I have a neighbor who's like, uh, we have a neighbor, he's awesome. He always, like, uh, snow blows uh, the snow out of our driveway where I'm like, I wasn't even going to shovel it. Like, this isn't snow. Right? But, like, he just comes over, snow blows it. Uh, another neighbor, I had a fence that was, like, wonky. He's like, I just fixed it because it bothered me. I'm like, oh, man. It just, it, when somebody really does serve you, they just, whew, you're like, oh, they care. Right? And a great way to show someone, like, hey, I'm just going to love on you just because I, I really believe God likes you. And so I want to like what God likes. I want to love who he loves. I'm just serving you. It just, it just 
Walls come down. Serving our neighbors. And lastly, share your story. A beautiful thing. A beautiful gift postmodernism has given us. Nobody can argue with your story. Right? No one can say, not true. That's my story. They may not believe you, they may not agree with you, but they, they can't argue with the facts. You can say, hey, look, after we've done these four steps, and you know that I care about you just because you're you, I like you, I'm attaching myself to you. Can I share with you how Jesus saved me, rescued me? It doesn't even have to be that opaque. You can just share your story. Like, hey, this is who I was in high school. I was a hot mess. I was a dumpster fire. I met Jesus. It turned my life around. Now here's who I am today. Right? Sharing our story. We talk a lot about this church. There have been different practices of former generations that have been fruitful and have worked. Right? Like we celebrate that past generations, evangelism explosion bore a lot of fruit. We celebrate things like the four spiritual laws, right? But here's the thing, though. Something shifted. You cannot argue with that. Something shifted. It used to be people had the furniture, and they just needed to know, oh, hey, like, here's who God is, and we just need to rearrange some of this furniture. Now, there's no furniture. And, like, so what we're saying is how do we reach a culture that is not associated with church, that is postmodern, where truth claims are looked at with just hostility? It seems like an act of aggression. What do we do? We enter people's worlds, we show them we love them, and we share our story. We share our story. And we trust that, hey, look, God, I don't know what fruit will come out of this. But I just want to bless my neighbors. What if God really does like our neighbors? My third question today. First question was, what if God likes our neighbors? Second question was, what can we do to reclaim our imagination? We're going to bless, right? You blessing your neighbors might look different from how I bless my neighbors. How you serve your neighbors might look different. You might just be like that neighbor who you're like, hey, I can just totally you know, change out your dishwasher. Like, I have magical powers. You may be like, hey, I'm a great, I just, I wanna, I'm gonna buy you groceries. You're shut in. We, we wanna be creative with that. How can we imagine that? But we wanna do that. My last question What's keeping us from blessing the person? who God has already put on our hearts. What's keeping us from blessing the person God has already put on our hearts to bless? A lot of times when we talk about reaching the unchurched, people may, you know, there's an imaginary person who may have this protest like, oh, I don't know anybody who's unchurched, right? I want to push back on that. Many of you may be aware uh, that during the pandemic, just a lot of people at church, just that rhythm just fell out, right? And no judgment, right? It's like, oh, hey, we, we, we went to church, everything just pandemic threw everything up, and then that rhythm got, it fell away, and we just never picked it back up, all right? No judgment. We all know and love people who've experienced that. The unchurched is someone who hasn't been meaningfully engaged in a church in the past three years. So if you're any good at arithmetic, this is 2023. Pandemic happened in 2020. Lots of people we know and love fall into that category. What helps? The posture of hospitality toward the un 
church. What if people felt like we were really happy they're here? Regardless of who they are, regardless of what they believe, their presence is a joy. They're a joy. Right? What's keeping us from blessing, from picking up this posture of hospitality beyond these four walls? Is it, is it fear? Is it fear of like, man, God, I, I don't know how to do that? Is it, maybe, maybe it's like this, this, we're saying, I don't even actually know any non-believers. Right? I mean, I, all my friends go to church. We've heard that quite a bit as we start talking about this with people. If that's you, if you're feeling like, I don't know any unbelievers, all my friends are saved, I'm off the hook, I'll help, you know, if someone else wants to bless, I'll help. Before you go down that road, let me just hit pause for a second. Frank is your friend, okay? If you're saying, I don't know any unbelievers, you have a new friend called Frank, okay? Frank is your friend. Frank is your friends, relatives, associates, neighbors, and colleagues. Somebody who is a friend relative, associate, neighbor, or colleague is probably not a Christian. All right, we just need to widen our, grow in our awareness of the people God's put in our lives. Frank is your friend. Bless is what we're trying to do to Frank. We want to bless Frank. All right? But I, I, just, I just have a hard time believing. I, unless you live on like a commune and you just haven't, like you just, I just... We just need to get a little, dig a little deeper. All right? Frank is your friend. And the beautiful thing, though, about trying to bless Frank, we're not doing it alone. As Rick Richardson, the author of this book, says, Frank is our friend, and community is our superpower. Frank, there are friends, relatives, associates, neighbors, and colleagues... We're not alone as we have people on our heart that we're trying to reach. You're, I truly believe part of just what it means to be a Christian is to be given this supernatural burden by Jesus to care about lost people. Right? And we can work against that. Some of us feel that more strongly than others. But we just want, and some of us are trying to protect lost people from the church. We're like, yo, don't come in here. These people are crazy. Right? But we've been given this desire of like, we care about these people. And we're not alone in that care. There's a new movie coming out about uh, the Jesus people. And the Jesus people were essentially, basically hippies who came off the beach and went into a church. They got saved and the revival broke out. You know what happened though in order for that revival to break out? Is that there was a church in Costa Mesa, California where people had to wrestle with, do we want barefoot hippies in our church? And we just paid for this carpet. I don't know where all those feet have been. But if I know anything about hippies, I've seen on the news, those feet probably haven't been good places. You know, isn't that good stewardship? We're honoring Jesus, but we want to take care of this shag carpet. All right? Shag carpet don't last forever. I, I think Jesus really cares about us being good stewards. And a group of people courageously said, I think Jesus likes these hippies more than the carpet. And there's, there's Jesus people in this room. I'm a spiritual ancestor of Jesus people. Like, thank God 
Thank God people said, we don't care about the carpet. Get it dirty. And thank God they did that before we got reached. Right? Can you imagine if they're like, uh, actually now we want to be a church with nice carpet. This room would be a lot more empty. Right? And what's keeping us from saying, God, I got shag carpet in my life. I got something I love and I just want to hold on to. But I, I want your presence more. And I believe your presence is on mission. I believe your presence is chasing after people and just to love on them, to give them that unmerited favor. Look, this is who we are. Non-negotiable. We are compass evangelical free church. Evangelical means good news. And oh, by the way, let's share that good news. All right? If we'd, if, we'd rather, if we'd rather say, hey, let's actually work against our identity. Let's work against who we are. And let's just protect this building. Let's keep everybody out. We are joining Jonah in a downward spiral that does not end well for Jonah. And by the way, you're, if you, I skipped the fish part, which is kind of the big part of the book. God moves heaven and earth and the laws of nature to show Jonah, hey, I'm really for your neighbors. And I just want to say, if you want to head on that downward spiral, whoo, watch out. Something might get moved on us. Something might get moved. But look, I am deeply confident that's not who we are. How am I deeply confident? Experience has told me that again and again here. I, ha I, have, I meet for coffee with people who are new to Compass. They're checking it out. And one of the things again and again they say is, man, somebody just came and said hi to me. How many people, I don't want to embarrass anybody, but how many people are in this room because the goot wines pursued you and just said, I'm going to get coffee with you. I'm going to love on you. Amazing. Yeah. Amen. amen. Yeah. It is amazing. <laughs> That's who we are are. We're going to lean into that identity. Now, next week, we're going to talk about some tension that this identity creates. And it, I have, I kicked this, I love this tension, okay? We're going to live in this tension. We're going to talk about reaching out without selling out, all right? Lots of churches are like, we're going to reach unbelievers. And then they, whoa, unbelievers don't like this, let's adjust, all right? And the biggest area, the biggest area historically that that comes into is the idea of social justice. There are many of you in here who've taken me out for coffee and say, please stop using the word social justice. I'm going to keep using it. I hear you, but I'm going to keep using it because we are going to say we're going to be committed to evangelism and we're going to be committed to social justice. Why? Because churches that don't care about justice don't evangelize. Churches that, that, that see the needs of our neighbors and say, nah, let's just meet their spiritual needs, they, they don't. They just historically do not. So we're going to meet the needs of our neighbors. But churches that care about justice without evangelism die. So we're going to try to avoid both of those death spirals. All right? We're gonna, we're gonna, we are going to bless our neighbors. We want to be a conversion community. We want to look around and just celebrate the new life because we think that's energizing to a body. And we're going to go out and be people who practice social justice. We're going to hold both of those. This is another key component of what it means to bless.
So if you're wondering what I mean by social justice and what we're talking about, come back next week. See what I did there? See what I did there? Uh -huh. This is a non-negotiable. We are going to be people who bless because we belong to bless. We have been blessed and that blessing pours out of us. We can't help it. And if God can bless a whole city, even the cows, through someone working against him, what do you think he can do with willing hearts? Saying, God, I'm scared. I don't know how to do this. But I'll say yes. As the band comes back, what I want to do as they're coming up here, I just want to create space for us to just imagine, God, what, what would it look like? What's the first step? So I think it could look something like this. God, who is the person? What's their name that you're putting on my heart? What's their name? And God, I just want to pray for them in this moment. Right? And, and what are you doing when you do that? When you ask God, what's their name? And I want to pray for them. You're blessing them. You're already, you're already, you're, you're well down the road to being a blessing. We begin with prayer. So we're going to do that this morning. We as a church are collectively going to sit in our seats and say, God, what's that person's name? Who have you put on my heart? And God, I want to just pray for them this morning. God, I pray that Fabio would cross paths with me. God, I pray that I'd bump into him and we would have a conversation this week. God, I, I just, I don't know what's going on with him, but I want to pray for him. But I want to lead you in that time of prayer. The band will just kind of jam We'll be a jam band for a little bit, and then we're going to continue worshiping. Yahweh. Yahweh. Full of compassion. God, give us that compassion. God, you've put names on our hearts. God, we trust that you like these people. We trust as children of Abraham that you're going to use us to bless them. So God, the names that are on our hearts, God, we pray for the fullest blessing of Jesus on these people. Father, we pray that they would learn of your love as we listen to them. As we eat, as we serve, as we share our story. God, we pray as we share our story, they would hear the good news of a Savior who died for their sins to give them new life in Christ and is who in this moment is preparing a place for them. God, whatever the obstacles we have, I pray that we would name them with you, whether it's fear guilt, shame, me, who, you're going to use me? God, I pray that the attachments that are happening here would burst out of these walls and that the city of Columbia would become a high joy community because you're present in us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. This podcast is part of the ministry of Compass Church in Columbia, Missouri. For more information, please check out compasscfc.com.